All right, you accursed. Let's get this hobbled pod underway. We're down a panelist today. It's like missing a limb. Scott Reed is out today. As I speak these words early on a Monday morning, his son Sam is competing in a basketball tournament, and in my head, I'm imagining Scott is cheering loudly from the bleachers with his best Jean Chrétien voice. Good luck, Sam. Curse of politics, good karma is coming your way from all three of us. That's me, David Hurley, Corey Tanaik in his upscale Sandinista uniform today, and Jordan Leitnitz in Ottawa. Here's the rundown today. We're going to start with our cursed clipping because it's a full analysis of yesterday's published Abacus data poll. Conservatives lead by 17 points over the Liberals. 1-7, 17. Liberals at 24. Uh, Conservatives are 22 points clear of the NDP, so not feeling a lot of heat there. We're going to talk about the week that was for Polyev, the porn headline, wading into change rooms and trans rights, his strong opposition to the proposed online harms legislation. What's the politics here? He doesn't choose to speak about every issue, but he is choosing to speak about these. And then the Pharmacare Agreement has finally been reached. What's the fallout? What is it? What's it going to mean politically? And what does it mean for the Supply and Confidence Agreement in the next year and a half? And then Gordon Pinsent will close it out with our... Hey, yous, and aren't we lucky to have Gordon to have had Gordon Pinson bless this show with his with his uh, voice and uh, character? All right, guys. So, how are you? Great. I'm all right, but but Corey looks better. Corey's looking very beachy this morning. Yeah, yeah. Nicole's back from Nicaragua. I'm wearing my Nicaragua T-shirt. He, she got me, and it's so so sunny in Toronto today. I'm wearing my sunglasses because it's so bright. In, in are, the, are you sure you that know? that's not that's not the result of the Ontario poll numbers this morning? Yeah, 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 yeah. So no, bright, was, you have to shield yourself. I I went to bed with a, a smile on my face last night after chatting with with my friend Nick Cavallis about the numbers. So yeah, it was, <laughs> it was good. Mm. Well, I chatted with Nick Cavallis about the numbers last week, and it. Did did not bring a smile to my face. <laughs> that was a good episode. There's lots of lots of uh, nuggets uh, in that thing. for For those who have not listened, they should check it out. Yeah, it was a great. It was a great episode. I actually thought he might have been spinning me in the Ontario provincial numbers, but it turns out he wasn't. Based on uh, Coletto and Abacus today, um, that's a different matter. We can get to that some other time. All right, let's let's wade into this. Jordan, I didn't find out. Are you okay? You doing all yeah, right? Yeah, I'm good. I had a really good weekend. I um I took my kids ice fishing with friends and it was we had just had perfect weather yesterday. So since it's like been this weird winter where we actually haven't it still doesn't feel like we've had a proper season, it was nice to get out and do that. Okay. So I've never been ice fishing. How long were you out there? Uh, well, little kids, so about four hours. Okay. How many fish did you catch? I would say we caught, we caught about uh, seven or eight. So we had, you know, we got some perch and then we got some very lost pike. Um, nothing, nothing worth keeping, but, uh, but yeah, it was fun. Right. All right. Well, that's probably enough fish to keep it interesting. Yes, you, I would you, say you, so. You do need to be catching fish when you're You fishing. do need to be catching. Well, and we went out with my buddy and he's got the like underwater camera. So that also adds a level of interest for oh. really for everybody. Cause you can mm. see what's happening and you can see the fish just looking at your lure and like not biting, right. um, which is, you know, a familiar feel for new Democrats. So it was yeah. good. I've got this vision of you in a hut on a lake, <laughs> sucking back a old Milwaukee going, you know, it doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> well, I, to play to type, I bring, I bring craft beer, but yes, that's, we're not totally off base. <laughs> All right, let's get to this abacus poll, which is uh, hot off the presses. Top line number, conservative 41, uh, down two from the last time, margin of error change. Liberals 24%, no change. NDP 19% up one, margin of error. So this is now stable in this range. Um, it's a beating everywhere across the country. The conservatives lead the liberals by 21 points in British Columbia, by 105 points in the prairies. Um <clears throat> by 16 points in Ontario and by 20 points in Atlantic Canada. So people are talking about 60 some seats for the Liberals based on based on this kind of uh, based on this kind of result. I I'll tell you what I found I'm interested in what you see in this data. But from my perspective, if I was working on the Liberal campaign, the thing that would really be scaring me right now 
is that there's no fear of Polyev that is apparent in the numbers. There is no, uh, so I look at things like, for instance, most people now think the Conservatives are going to win the election. Only one in five Canadians think the Liberals are going to win the election. Most people think the Conservatives are going to win the election. They're not recoiling from that. That isn't building any negatives about Polyev or or the Conservatives. Um, the Polyev's negatives are static and not high in the in the mid thirties. Um, and so you're not seeing the kind of resistance to him. And the most telling point for me is this. And I said this to you guys on the WhatsApp chat this weekend, right? When Coletto asks people to choose in a forced choice between Polyev and Trudeau, Polyev wins by 10 points. Now, you may say, well, that just makes sense. He's ahead by 17 points in the polls. But no, it doesn't make sense. Because normally, given the fact that all the votes that are parked with the NDP, the Bloc, and the Green Party, that the Liberal leader should be winning that best Prime Minister over the Conservative leader by 15 or 20 points. Um, and the fact that he's losing to Polyev on that metric, meaning many Liberal voters um, and are not choosing Trudeau, and at least a third of NDP voters are not choosing Trudeau uh, over Polyev. It's amazing. And it is, um, for, for those people who thought that Polyev was going to be an unacceptable uh, alternative, for people that thought that Canadians were going to be revolted by Polyev or repelled by Polyev or scared by Polyev, none of that appears to be occurring. So, I mean, and that is a precondition to winning again at this point in time is that lots of people find the alternative to be unacceptable. Corey, what do you see? Yeah, well, I see all those things uh, as well, David. Uh, but what else I see is uh, I don't think Polyev is as high as he's going to go yet. Like when you look at, at where his voter ceiling is and, and the underlying numbers in terms of right track, wrong direction for the government, desire for a change in government, uh, I think he can go a few points higher yet. Uh, I'm, I'm not quite as bullish as uh, my friend Nick, who thinks he can get to 50, but I think he could get to 48. Like I, I, I don't think he's uh, he's topped out yet, and uh, I think that's really bad news, not just for the Liberals but the NDP, because I see more of those points coming off the NDP than I do off the Liberals. Last time out in this space, you Hurley Burleyites might remember I took you all for a metaphorical spin in a nearly now technology self-driving vehicles. This week, we're talking about another industry quickly advancing into the autonomous space. AM is the shorthand for it. Autonomous mining, when you dig a little deeper. And yes, that will be the last of my mining puns for today. I hardly need to tell you how critical mining has always been to Canada's industrial success. But we all have the imagery in our heads, don't we? Miners descending into inhospitable environments, peril, an unwelcome part of the territory. Well, the entire industry is right on the cusp of a next-gen network revolution. With their superior coverage, ultra-low latency, and superior reliability, 5G and fiber networks will make it possible to automate so much of the old analog process, driving a myriad of remote operation possibilities. These are precisely the network technologies our presenting sponsor, TELUS, continues to invest billions in, with good reason. With more companies building battery plants in Canada, we need critical minerals to be mined as safely, efficiently, and productively as possible, with minimal impact on the environment. Here's an eye-opener. McKinsey estimates that by 2035, the age of smart mining will save mineral raw material producers between 290 and 390 billion dollars annually. And as the world quickly approaches a future where industries in all sectors rely more and more on advanced networks to automate their work, Canada has a very real opportunity to position itself as a leader. But as I've been saying, the kind of multi-billion dollar investments it takes to get us to that place only happen under regulatory conditions that continue to make it all make fiscal sense. More next week. Jordan, I mean, liberals have to understand this, this is not looking 
like 2006 against Harper. This is looking like 2004, uh, sorry, 1984 against Mulroney. This is what this looks like. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, this is, there's no question, it's grim. And I think what really struck me was that this poll provides support for the idea that we've talked about a lot over the last year, which is that the efforts the Liberals have made so far to change tracks and to push back are ineffective. They are not landing. And I think that one of the most interesting kind of markers in this poll is uh, Cleto did a little bit of a breakdown on issues and sort of, do you think the government has put enough focus on X, Y, Z issue? And it's really interesting. So, I, you know, I think folks would do well to go and take a look at it. But it's just damning. So they he measured uh, whether or not people think the government has put adequate focus on cost of living. That measure has gone up five points in a year. So 5% people more think the government is not doing enough, up to 75% of people surveyed. That is just brutal. You got three quarters of the population who thinks you're not doing enough on one of the top three most important issues that people have. And that's despite everything that they've done. The number one of, issue by a mile, let's be clear. Yeah, the number one right. issue by a mile. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, I should say also, yeah. like, their measurements on housing and healthcare are are really not very much better either. No. So, but to me, this is something that if I were to, if I were the liberals and I were to pull one thing out of here uh, that is that is really worrying, this would probably be it because it suggests that the course corrections that they are taking on so far are not landing, they're not working, and in fact, they're continuing to lose ground on these really, really important uh, ballot questions. And at the end of the day, like they're they're now sitting with a a voter universe under forty percent. Like this is this is a this is a shrinking pool. Uh, for the liberals to fish in, and and it's it's going very much the wrong direction for them, even though they have to some degree redirected their government's focus around messaging. It's just not sticking. Yeah, well, they're well, not they're, they're not communicating it in a way that is that yeah. that is effective, and and there's no there's no sword on the other side. So you know they're promoting the good things that they're doing, and the ministers are attacking. But it's yeah, not, well, I thought, it's I thought this this paired this paired well with the story out in the Star today, analyzing some online ad spending between the Liberals and the Conservatives, uh, and there continues to appear to be a thinking on the part of the Liberals that they can wait to deliver paid negative messaging until the campaign starts. And this they don't this, have any fucking yeah. money, Jordan. Listen, I would say this is I'm, all I, suggesting that that is uh, absolutely a suicidal idea. It struck me. It struck me so much that I think I remember the exact quote. Senior liberal officials on background so they could speak frankly, on background so they could speak frankly, didn't think it would be effective now to attack Polyev, right? They went on background so they could give that frank uh, commentary about their plan right now. Jordan, to your point, let's just take the polling here for a second. The things that, so Coletto asked people on a range of issues, is the Trudeau government doing too much about right or not enough on these issues. The things where they seem to be doing too much or the right amount, let's say you could infer that they've got an edge over Polyev on those issues. Climate change, indigenous reconciliation, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. Then on the other side, here are the things that almost everybody thinks they're not doing enough on and presumably are losing badly to Polyev. The cost of housing, the rising cost of living, problems with the healthcare system, and crime and public safety. So I take into the fight climate change, indigenous reconciliation, and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and I'm fighting against cost of living, healthcare, and housing. Yeah, How's good that fucking luck. Be? You're going to need it. Oh, fuck. Yeah. I, honest to God, don't see a way back. Corey. I don't. Well, look, I, I, you know, we've said this a bunch of times before, but I think so much of this is tied to, to Trudeau's unpopularity at a personal level. Like, I think the public has just <laughs> closed their ears to anything he has to say. And uh, I don't see a path back with with him in, in a leadership position. Like, I, I think, you know, you can come to that realization before the election and try to try to have a change there, or you can come to it after the election with, you know, a whole lot fewer seats than you might have otherwise had. But like, I, I, I don't, I don't know what thread is in those numbers that you could pull on to, to, uh, to do anything with at the moment. Like the, the lead is astounding. You know, the underlying numbers are even worse than what the lead is. Um, 
you know, I, I, I see them, you know, going even lower. I, you know, is, is it possible that they could get as low as 20? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. Well, yeah, I mean, well, it's already a six, it's just a six point spread between the NDP and the liberals should be very concerning for them. Like that's, you know, they drop well, further. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, but like, I think there's as much here for the NDP to worry about, like, you know, there, you, you know, you've, talked in the past uh, about you know there being a progressive ballot well you know who's winning a progressive ballot in a way between <laughs> you know sounds sound strange but it's it's polyev like he's he's drawing uh from the ndp heavily like it's not like people are, are moving between the liberals and the ndp they're moving to the conservatives on both sides like yeah i do think uh, i do think it's a really interesting dynamic in this poll like if you if you you know, the numbers are here. I think it's really is at best a mixed bag for Singh and the NDP. But the fact that they're still holding above their 2021 results, despite having like nearly two years of a pretty clear consensus that Polyev is going to form the next government uh, and messages to progressives that Polyev is scary and we don't you know, we don't want him. The fact that they're still holding there, I think, is really interesting. And, and I agree, it does suggest that the support that they're losing is is really primarily going to the conservatives, um, and I think I think that that's going to be their big challenge is they have to reorient they have to reorient themselves around fighting some of those battles for working class voters, you know, in areas like Northern Ontario in the Southwest, and those are going to be the fights to watch. Well, so what's happening? What's happening, Jordan? Do you think? I mean, I, I can believe I understand completely the dynamic of. Um, the conservative NDP switchers among blue collar mill towns and things like that. But in the cities, so let's take, for example, let's look at the BC market, for example. Coletto says BC is 41 conservative, 20 liberal. So the liberal votes collapsed in BC. NDP are at 27. Why are the NDP only at 27? David Eby's way above that. Yeah. Super popular, right? What? Why? Why are the NDP not scooping up liberal urban votes? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing in BC is that people who support the NDP government in BC and who vote BC NDP are are very open to voting other ways federally, right? So you you don't necessarily have that that tight uh, connection between the two parties as voters understand it there. I think also there's a degree of people watching and waiting to see what's going to happen. I think that, um, you know, they, there's still a discomfort with Polyev as an alternative. So we'll see where people settle. Um, but yeah, I think that there, you know, some of the same dynamics around those working class ridings exist in BC as they do in Ontario. You look at Northern Vancouver Island, you look in the interior of BC. These are, these are ridings that have, a lot of the same type of profile in terms of those potential swing voters than you do in some of those working class areas in Ontario. So I think the dynamic there is the same. And, and the NDP, you know, they have a challenge out there. They need to make sure that they are speaking to some of those issues that get those voters engaged and pull them away from the Conservatives. And I'm not sure that uh, they've been able to do that so far. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll state the obvious on this. It's a change election coming. And and the NDP are supporting the government. Like I, I think that it is probably the the simplest and clearest explanation. Like if you are part of the, you know essentially part of the government, seen as as in league with the government, uh, and it's a change election. How like why would why would people support them? Like I, I just think you know that that's the simplest and probably the most straightforward. Uh, uh, answer, uh, you know, m minus those voters that you were talking about that are, are more blue collar. And I think there's cultural issues and other things. But, you know, if you're, you know, if you're talking, you know, climate change and sort of urban woke issues, uh, you're not going to be very attractive to a lot of those voters, too. So sort of a combination uh, of the two. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm a little less sold on that thesis yet. Like, I, I think as we get closer, that that could be more of a dynamic. But I think it makes sense, you know, Singh's negatives to be a little bit higher as he's exercising power and leverage. Not everybody likes that. That's polarizing, you know. Um, but it's really going to be also about how the party is able to tell the story of this agreement. Is it an agreement 
where they were propping up the government and carrying on unpopular liberal policies? Or is it an agreement where they were able to leverage their position to get stuff for people? And I know we're going to talk more about farm care, so I don't want to, I don't want to scoop that conversation, but I think a lot of it is going to depend on how they message that and when they choose to break with the government. So the Scotties just wrapped up. Those of you who know, know there is no more Canadian contest anywhere. Anyway, the curling at that event is about as good as curling gets. Like any sport, it has its own glossary of terms. House, hog line, button, pebble, brushing, etc. You can look it all up. And of course, curl. A stone's curl is the amount its trajectory bends while traveling down the ice. An expert curler can perform a move called a hit and roll. Bear with me here, curling fans. I'm getting to the point. In a hit and roll, the curler curls a stone down the ice, aiming at a stone on the other end of the rink that has another stone, a guard, in front of it. Properly executed, a hit and roll curls around the guard stone, knocks out the targeted stone, and then tucks itself in behind the guard. Like I said, it's an expert move. There are curlers who say, let's just worry about hitting something, period. Get the basics down before trying any fancy stuff, in other words. And yes, here's where I get to the point. Our sponsor, CN, decided to get back to getting the basics down a few years back. As I've said here more than once, the railway initiated a prime directive. Trains leave the station on time and arrive on time every time and safely. That's trickier than it sounds. Tracks have to be clear, weather has to be coped with, scheduling has to be precise, but it's working. CN trains are more punctual than they have been in years. Train velocity, the number of miles a train covers in an average day, is higher than it has been for years. Trains are spending less time in stations. CN customers are getting the cars they need when they need them, and their shipments are arriving on time. Come to think of it, that is actually sort of a hit and roll. The analogy might be a bit convoluted, but I like it. Well, let's just slide right into that. Let's just slide right into that. So, yeah, there, there, there is a deal um, on Pharmacare. Um, not much detail out yet. I saw the NDP get a significant couple of day lead on describing this program uh, to Canadians uh, over the government. Um, not sure how happy the government was to see Mr. <laughs> Singh out there on Friday talking about this thing, but um, in in any event, got to so dance with the one that brung you. <laughs> it sounds like it's some sort of legislation that provides for a framework for pharmacare, but not actual pharmacare, with the exception of two two areas of drugs, contraception and um, and diabetes which is estimated to cost around a billion dollars a year, 800 million. Freeland says it's within their fiscal framework. They can do it without expanding the deficit somehow. Um, they can do that. Uh, I don't know whether provinces have to sign on or not sign on in order for this contraception and diabetes drug thing to happen. Probably they do. So Alberta and Quebec have already signaled that they're not going to sign on. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of provinces said they weren't going to sign on to the program. So I'm not ultimately sure what it means. Um, it certainly means politically that the, I want to get this right now, the Supply and Confidence Agreement, SACA, um, uh, continues. And clearly, I have to say, Jordan, looking at the substance of the deal, it is a deal that is driven in part by the NDP's desire to get a pharmacare program, and in part by both sides' desire to keep this confidence and supply agreement going. Correct? Yeah, and I would say also in part by a, a desire to set up an, a, a neat little wedge for the Conservatives. So I think maybe I would add that as a bit of a third leg to that stool. Yeah, I think, look, the you know, there's... There is a really earnest component to this. Uh, the New Democrats were serious about wanting to make progress on this. This is the largest, along with the dental care, it's the largest expansion of Medicare since its inception. This is a really big win for them. And I think it's a big win, not just 
in material terms, because as this legislation goes through and as they negotiate with provinces, you are going to end up with more Canadians who currently have to pay out of pocket for these medications, getting them for free. And that's a, that's a good thing for our country. I think we can all agree on that. But I think that they, as we've talked about before, they turned an issue that doesn't necessarily have a lot of resonance uh, with the public, like people weren't lining up clamoring for pharmacare, but they've managed to take that and put it in, I think, a really communications first lens, which is something that was missing in some of these earlier conversations. So the choice of drugs that are going to be covered was really important. The fact that they're getting two specific classes of drugs included in this legislation rather than just a framework legislation, which was actually what was in the text of the supply and confidence agreement. So they can claim that, you know, this is over and above what they agreed to. I think that's all to the good. And with respect to the provinces, look, uh, I don't, this is not astonishing that Alberta would, would preemptively declare to opt out, uh, and nor is it astonishing that Quebec would preemptively declare that they would like to opt out with compensation, yes, please. Um, but we've also heard BC and Manitoba are already indicating willingness to sign on. And, you know, I think that the past has shown that even conservative provinces can come around on healthcare agreements. I mean, Ontario just signed one last week with the feds. After. What about the chaos going on in the child care space, though, right now? Wouldn't that yeah. be a cautionary tale for provinces signing on to another FedProv agreement? Well, yeah, I mean, these, these programs have to be adequately funded, right? Like that's you, you, you can't you can't set up standards that are unattainable with the funding that is supplied for them. And I think that that's really one of the big issues with the child care program right now. And like we live it in our family. We use that program. And, uh, and the reality is, is that the funding right now is not adequate to create the number of spaces with, with staff who are well-paid enough to stay in those positions. And so you can legislate the best framework in the world, but if you don't fund it, it's not actually going to work for people. So that is something that obviously has to be a part of these conversations. And I think, um, you know, I noted with some amusement that uh, Freeland has scurried out very quickly this weekend from, from Poland. Uh, to to reassure uh, those in caucus who are who care about these things that this was going to stay within an 800 million envelope, and I I know what I know who that message was for, but but I actually think that that's helpful for the new Democrats because that's putting a real dollar figure on this. That makes this real. This is something that there's money set aside from, and that is going to hopefully happen soon for people. So all in all, I think I think this has this was well played uh, for the new Democrats, and now they have an opportunity to claim a good solid win on pharmacare, probably as good as they were going to get in this agreement in this situation, and tee up some other demands leading into the budget that are more tied with issues like housing and affordability that are gonna be a little bit more favorable for them. And then as we've talked about before, they set up to the next squeeze on the government. This was just last week's squeeze, there will be another. And and so that's, that's gonna be what they now have to do is look to how they're gonna land this ship and make sure that it's on terms that are favorable to them. Well, I'm not sure the NDP can can survive uh, any more brilliant victories like uh, like they've had on dental care and other things. Like, you know, if, if this is such a great idea and if this plan works so well, how come it's not being reflected in any of the polling? Like, uh, you know, I think... Where are the child care votes? Where's the dental? Where are the dental yeah. care votes? And, and, and I don't think they're going to be votes on, uh, you know, going their way on this either. I think... You know, all of this stuff is is too niche. It leaves out too much of the middle class. Like the, the reality is, uh, most Canadians do have uh, coverage for for drugs either through their employer or uh, through uh, existing provincial subsidies, etc. Like the, there's not a big problem that's being fixed. Like you know, these are, are rhetorical uh, wins for the NDP, but they're wins that don't seem to to, to move votes in their direction. I think they'd be much better to be focused. Uh, on some other issues around cost of living, as opposed to, uh, or even you know, advocating that the government put more money into core healthcare services that are a lot more important to Canadians. So, Corey, so why can't they argue? Why can't they argue that this is a cost of living measure? Why can't they take childcare, dental care, pharmacare, wrap it all up, and say, look at how much we're saving people? Yeah, because uh, they can't because it's not broad broad based enough. Like there are, are not enough Canadians that uh, qualify for those programs. They're too targeted. They're too niche, and uh, you know, which is is why I think Polyev is cleaning uh, you know both the Liberals and the NDP's clock on this stuff. 
because a carbon tax does touch everybody. And if you say, I'm going to get rid of that, that, that people see a direct line between their, you know, their economic situation and that change in policy. And too, far too few Canadians uh, see a similar uh, benefit for them in, in these niche targeted programs. So, like I, you know, right now I only see one party and one politician at the federal level who's playing to the the masses, to to the large middle class of the country, and that's Polyev. Today's podcast sponsor, Bruce Power, knows a thing or two about big projects. The company is undergoing a multi-year, multi-billion-dollar refurbishment program, which is Canada's largest private sector infrastructure project and will secure a reliable supply of carbon-free nuclear power for Ontario to at least 2064. Bruce Power is refurbishing six of its eight generating units through its major component replacement project, which involves replacing all of the reactor internal parts, pipework, and large reactor components. Think replacing 320,000-pound steam generators using one of the world's largest cranes. Unit 6 was the first to undergo refurbishment, which began in January 2020 and was declared commercially operational last September, 39 years to the day of its first in-service date in 1984. What was not by chance was the fact that the project was completed successfully and with an industry best safety rating for large projects. And thanks to the efforts of its employees, industry partners, and thousands of skilled tradespeople, the refurbishment was completed ahead of schedule and on budget. Unit 6 alone provides enough clean electricity to power more than 900,000 homes, and each renewed unit will be operational for more than 40 years, a period in which the independent electricity system operator forecasts the need for clean energy to more than double. Big projects also mean jobs, a lot of them. Bruce Power secures an estimated 22,000 jobs directly and indirectly from operations and an additional 5,000 jobs annually through its investment program. And with over 90% of the company's spend staying within Canada, supporting hundreds of businesses, the Made in Canada project helps power the economy. You know, so Jordan, it's, it raises an interesting question for me, which is, are, is Singh and the federal NDP um, ideologically unprepared to offer Canadians tax relief? Because New Democrats at the provincial level right now are offering Canadians tax relief uh, as opposed to programming uh, supports. And I haven't heard anything like that out of the NDP, broad-based tax relief, um, you know, such as the carbon tax or something else. Gas taxes is what people are doing at the provincial level. Um, why aren't they going there and might they go there? Yeah, I would say uh, absolutely. I don't think that they're allergic to that. And I would expect to see things like that included in their platform as they get closer to the election. I mean, there's there's no there's no mystery. That stuff, it works. It's very effective. You see it in Manitoba. You see it you know, to some degree in BC as well. These are these are measures that work with people and they also help inoculate against some of the big spending concerns that voters can sometimes have about New Democrats. And and you know, Singh and his team are very alert to what is happening in other provinces and what seems to be working. And so, you know, and I know of course um Singh's chief of staff, uh, Jennifer Howard, came up through Manitoba politics, knows this stuff very right. well. And uh, is absolutely alive to the potential of that, you know. So I think, I, I don't think they're allergic to it at all. But I think that what they're doing here, you know, they, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't buy entirely what Corey is saying, because I think as we've talked about before, these commitments like on dental care and pharma care, it's not, it's not strictly transactional with voters. It's not, oh, yes, you gave me a dental care program. Yes, I'm going to vote you you know part of this is also for the NDP about overcoming some of the perceptions around competence and ability to govern that have hampered them particularly at the federal level so, so they're throwing their lot in with this crew well they <laughs> they are they are getting things to help people out of this crew that quite plainly have to be dragged out of this government and would not happen if they weren't there. And I don't think that that's at all a bad place to be. And I actually think that the way that the pharmacare deal landed with the two specific classes of drugs being covered, which by the way, 
do touch a lot of Canadians. Very smart to include contraception. That's a, an issue. And I can guarantee that... I'd have included that, Ozempic if I were them. Well, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think for, for, for certain demographics, that's, you know, that's going to be a biggie for sure. But look, this more, is something... More Ozempic, you might need more birth control as well. I don't know. It could be, it could be actually a that's whole lot of That's where the cost spiral here. starts. Yeah, I was going to say, right? you guys keep Viagra, dreaming, dreaming the big. the whole thing together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? <laughs> but... I think that that, you know, that's a smart choice, right? This like every woman in Canada who uses birth control can tell you a story of, of a time in their life when they were not covered and when they did have to pay out of pocket for this stuff. And, and so I, I really disagree with the idea that these are too narrow to touch people. I do think it touches people. I think that, for example, even on dental care, if some families are making too much money currently, perhaps to qualify for it. But maybe their senior parents qualify for it and, and, and who are on a fixed income. And that's making a big difference for them. So some of this is, is about making sure that within these agreements with a government that clearly does not really want to do any more big program spending, uh, that's uh, having some, uh, so, some regret around that, that they're dragging things out that actually are tangible, that people have in hand, that they can relate to. And I think that they've managed to turn some of these big programs into those specific concrete things that they can they can go out and talk about in a relatable way. And actually, by the way, I should say this is something that the liberals themselves have completely failed to do over the tenure of their government. And that the NDP in the space of this two-year agreement has managed to stay more focused on some of the communications-friendly outcomes of these large programs than the government has uh, since, since they've taken office in 2015. So what yeah. you're saying is with this pharmacare plan uh with the liberals and the ndp you're fucked <laughs> <laughs> i mean only consensually <laughs> uh, look i i'm just curious though you know if if the ndp used the leverage that they have with their confidence and supply agreement and and focused it instead on farm of on pharmacare on getting rid of the carbon tax and replacing it with something else if they wouldn't be miles and miles further ahead i think it would help stop the bleeding uh that they're they're having to the conservatives i think it would broaden their reach to more of the middle class and uh uh you know it's it's uh something that's more important to canadians like you know at the end of the day uh, it's always been an unlikely thing in my mind to, to be pushing for, for pharmacare. Like, you know, the support levels for it compared to other things that you could be doing, or, or, you know, it's, it's just not high enough. Like, I, you know, it's, well, a, there's it's actually a, weird, a tangible it's a example, weird. Corey. There's a tangible example, and I'm quite familiar with it, which is, listen, I am immensely proud of the policy agenda that Kathleen Wynne pursued when she was the Premier of Ontario. But it included many of these things. It included a targeted pharmacare program. It included uh, all-day kindergarten, junior kindergarten, and it included child care stuff, and it included a lot of programming like this. And I was proud of those initiatives as policy, but there was no votes in them. Yeah. Right? There were, no, there were no votes in them. And partly the problem is, let's be blunt, when you are targeting low-income people, they're less likely to pay attention to news, and, they're, and know what's going on, and they're less likely to vote. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the people who are sure to vote uh, don't benefit from these things. And the people that may or may not vote do benefit from these things. And so you've got an additional political problem um, about it. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's harmful politically, Jordan, but I don't see it as a springboard yeah, I, I would agree with you. I don't I don't think it's in and of itself a springboard. It's not a silver bullet. It's going to matter enormously how this is communicated to the voters that saying the NDP need to reach. But I also think that, you know, and, and I'm sure we would all agree on this. We're living in a time of really sort of in politics, like politics that is divided and depressing and dark and really designed to turn the average voter off. And so... There is a not insignificant, very earnest part of me that is just so fucking happy that something good has gone on here. That's something that, uh, in yes, it's incrementalist. And yes, you know, maybe it won't last. Maybe, you know, all of those things are very true. But at the end of the day, this is really the art of the possible within, within government. And I think that it's a positive thing for Canadians to see this. And I think it's particularly a positive thing in the environment that we're in right now. 
The challenge is now for the new Democrats that they need to sell this uh, in an electorally favorable way. And that's the challenge that's before them. But I think that they did they did a good thing here for the country. And that's uh, and that's not nothing. All right. Corey, do you got anything last thing to say about this confidence and supply agreement carrying on? Well, if it keeps going this well, there there's going to be two parties that suffer very badly in the next election. So, you know, keep, keep it going, I guess, uh, as a conservative on the panel. I, I think it's working great for Polyev. Not not a lot of evidence that it's working for the NDP. In fact, none that I can see. Hey, David Coletto, suggestion. Interesting thing for me would be to know what at this point people see the differences between the Liberal Party and the NDP to be. Um, are these things merging into one entity in people's minds, or are they two, still two distinct entities with different uh, approaches? I'd be quite interested to see. Well, and I think some interesting going. stuff on Best PM there to tease mm. out. We have been hearing from our original sponsor, the Ontario Real Estate Association, about solutions to address the housing affordability crisis and build 1.5 million new homes. Aurea's latest research offers 10 key actions to increase housing supply, from purpose-built rentals to new homes, so that more families can achieve the dream of home ownership. Actions include ending exclusionary zoning, converting vacant commercial space to residential housing, and allowing water and wastewater to be provided through a municipal services corporation. These bold ideas will make meaningful progress to build more homes. On top of these policies, we need political courage. Queen's Park needs to act with urgency and put their foot on the gas to reach the housing targets. More can and must be done to give people in Ontario the homes they need today and in the future. Remember, bold action builds homes. Read Aurea's report on how Ontario can end the housing crisis at aurea.com slash advocacy slash housing dash supply. Okay, our next topic, our next topic is issues I'm very uncomfortable with. Let's call it this. Let's just put a headline on this. Issues David Hurley is uncomfortable talking about. Um, <clears throat> but, um, and that is, what was Pierre Polyev doing last week? So he's extremely judicious. I wouldn't say he doesn't say anything about policy. He's put all policies in areas where he wants to. And in areas where he doesn't want to, he hasn't put out policy. So, you know, it's it's far from an open book what a Polyev government would be. So when he decides to take an issue on, I think it's of some significance. And he did take stake out some very clear positions last week. He said he was in favor of some sort of age restriction on accessing pornography. Um, and uh, uh, as somebody that used to get caught leafing through things in the magazine stand of the local drugstore, I have no comment on this issue. Um, and um, he said that he opposed um, the government's proposed Online Harms Act, which he hadn't seen but opposes, I guess, conceptually and in principle. Um, and he said that he uh, uh, he had a position on transgender uh, in that biological males should not be in female washrooms and biological males should not participate in women's sports. Um, so these things don't appear on... Coletto's list of important issues either. Um, and I'm wondering why um, he feels the need to stake out, and they're, and they're kind of conflicting positions. Like the position on accessing porn seems a little inconsistent with the position on online harms. Um, and one of them seems libertarian, and one of them seems perhaps more traditionally small c conservative. To me, so I think it's all interesting. So, Corey, maybe you could demystify for us why Polyev felt he wanted to wade into these issues and what message he's sending by doing so. Well, I think they're not huge priorities as part of what my take was in this. Like, you know, these are issues that you're going to get questions on because of you know things that are either moving through Parliament or that are are big stories in the media uh, uh, and uh, things where other uh, where other uh, uh, levels of government are, are doing things. So, you know, the trans issue, you know, you've got uh, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Alberta, 
moving on these things. And, uh, and so th- the question's going to come up. And I think you're better to have an answer than not have an answer. But I also think you're better to not talk about it very much. Um, but insofar as there are two sides on this, and I, actually, you know, I enjoyed your conversation with uh, Nick uh, Cavellis uh, around this stuff. Uh, you've got, you know, multiple parties splitting up you know, a divided public and you got one party with, you know, basically half the public. So, you know, I I don't think it's a highly controversial statement to say that uh, biological uh, men shouldn't be playing women's sports. Like if, if you were to, to take the other position, you know, it'd be difficult to see very many female athletes or female sports uh, existing because of just the, you know, difference in, in physicality between the two genders. You know, there's a reason why, uh, things are divided that way at the Olympics and professional sports and amateur sports, etc. So, like, I don't think that's a highly controversial uh, statement. I just also don't think it's uh, a terribly relevant topic to be talking about at all in, in, in a, the environment that we're in with cost of living issues and all the rest. So, um, I don't think there's a big downside for them. I would disagree a little bit about uh, the trans issue being a SOCON issue. You know, you can find all kinds of people who are, you know, millennials or uh, and people from more, the more traditional left who have have similar issues around around that stuff. Uh, so I think it's more complicated than that. But I just I don't, don't think. Sorry, I don't think I characterize trans as a SOCON issue. Okay. No, I, I was saying that I thought that the position on pornography was a typically small C conservative position. Mm-hmm. To take, whereas well, the position I mean, on I mean, online harms seem more like a libertarian yeah, position right. to take, and maybe more of a PPC fo- focused intervention. Yeah, and they've like, but they've talked about the conservatives have talked about this stuff before. Like, you know, it's it's. I, I do think the conservative. And we've talked about this before. I do think the conservative party today is more libertarian than it is socially conservative. At least their last convention was, you know, markedly so. Uh, basically, all the SoCon stuff got voted down. Right. And, uh, you know, and they ended up with uh, a resolution on body autonomy, which sounds like, uh, you know, uh, uh, decriminalizing drugs in the morning after pill. So I think it's sort of like uh, going in the opposite direction on that. Yeah, I just don't think they're huge issues. And I, I think it would be a mistake for the conservatives to spend much time on them. So, you know, but they are going to come up for the reasons I, you know, I mentioned. So you got to have an answer. But I, I think there's too much being read into it. You know what, Jordan? I have polling on, on online harms. I have polling on online harms, and I know that Polyev is way off of public opinion on this and way off of most conservative voters on this. People in Canada largely believe that there's terrible stuff happening online, especially to kids, and that there's a role for government to regulate it and even criminalize it where necessary. Um, and so... Um, I don't suspect this is going to rise to the level of a vote-determining issue, but this is an example, I think, of where Polyev, you know, gets away with messaging to that PPC crowd out there to hold their numbers down at 2 or 3%, and, and maybe gets away with something that most people would disagree with him on. Yeah, I actually, you know, in, in, in contrast to Corey, I thought last week was super fascinating in terms of conservative strategy, and I think a couple different things to take away from it and and maybe to to go first on the online harms and the porn issue because i think i think there were a couple things happening there and maybe one was a bit inadvertent um and one one was more planned so the position on the online harms stuff obviously that was the planned component and yes i agree with you i think i think it's uh it's not a great position to be stringently opposed to legislation that would go after criminal activity online that's targeting kids. And I say specifically that last part because the government seems to be doing a much tighter job this time around of messaging the bill around harms to kids. And like we're talking about stuff like I'm sure you guys remember the Amanda Todd case many years ago. Um, so like non-consensual dissemination of, of nudes and things like that. Like this stuff is sadly uh, very tragic, also very relatable and is happening to a lot of families. And so I think it's uh, not necessarily a wise position on Pelyev's part to come out whole hog against it, particularly prior to seeing it. And without really having seeded the ground for, for any kind of opposition like that, I think it, it speaks 
to a to a much more niche libertarian base and not so much to the concerns of mainstream Canadians on this stuff. But I thought that they, it was really interesting because the the headline around the porn stuff was really generated from an extremely short back and forth, right, in, in the Q&A last Wednesday, where he was asked effectively, you know, do you support ID for... For, for accessing porn, he just said yes. And um, and so from that uh, was, was generated a pretty hot headline that uh, the conservatives were at pains to walk back uh, online all day. You could just see them scrambling. And and boy, if uh, if the same amount of my base was was men, uh, particularly middle-aged men, I too would be scrambling to correct that. And I, I think it's really interesting because, you know, I reaching back in time to the debates you guys will probably remember over C51 and things like that. You'll recall that one of the one of the biggest concerns that actually ended up mobilizing people around that was not just civil liberty stuff, but it was also concerned that the government was going to access your browsing history. Turns out that men uh, really didn't didn't like that very much. So the fact that uh, you know, and this bill coming from the Senate right now, they're they're you know, New Democrats voted for it, liberals voted for it. I think it's a piece of legislation that's likely going to, in some form, pass, but. For the conservatives to be going out there and saying this is our position, but but we actually don't support any concrete measure to verify ID. We don't want, you know, we don't want facial recognition. We don't want any online ID. It's going to be kind of a fun square to watch them circle. And but honestly, Gary- Jordan, isn't it a, isn't it a reasonable question to say that at the time of my life when I most wanted porn, it was illegal for me to buy it? Sure. Right when I was fourteen years old, it was illegal for me to buy porn. Right. Yeah. I, I couldn't even. I mean, I couldn't even see what they called porn in Playboy when I was fourteen years old. And now you can see the most graphic acts ever conceived of. That's when right. you're fourteen years old. Yeah, it's right? a, is it's that okay? Is that no, okay? It's a hundred percent an issue, but it's also a hundred percent an issue that the government is not adequately legislating illegal uh, bad things online. So the the conservatives have a bit of a an incongruity in their positioning that I think they're going to have to work out. And, and I do think that this, this issue on, on the porn access, like there was a certain amount of glee among conservative opponents last week in grabbing this issue and running with it. I think just because of how unpopular that position actually would be among their base. I'm not really speaking to the policy merits of either one of these things at this point, but just to that, to that division. But on the trans piece, so I actually, I thought this was the most significant and interesting development last week simply because it was clearly so intentional uh, on the part of Polyev to come out and lay down a position on this, on an issue that six months ago at the Conservative Convention, he could not stay far enough away from it. But last week, he, you know, that question that was teed up and that was, that was not an off-the-cuff uh, series of remarks he made. The, you know, he made some very, very specific comments that touched on a number of, of dog whistles within that debate, the idea that trans people are in the wrong washroom, all of that stuff. Like this is a very, this is part of a package of, of transphobic narratives that we have seen before. And he was tap, he was like dinging on every single one. So this was about, this was about sending a message to uh, what I can only assume is a certain group of voters in his base. And my, my thoughts on strategically why he did it last week, I don't think it was because he suddenly got a pointed question. I don't think it was because, um, you know, there was anything like that. I think I think there was a desire for him to get out on it. And I think that the Conservatives wanted to do it early uh, so as not to dwell on it. Because I think that the people around Polyev generally understand that this is not a favorable issue for them to be spending time on. And yet, they were getting pressure internally to stake out. In a way that Harper did in 2006 with same-sex marriage. Just said off the top, I'm opposed to it, blah, blah, blah. We'll have a free vote, right? Right. Don't ask me about this again for the rest of the campaign. But I actually want to draw some contrast with that. Because I think think what he did was not, uh, and, and again, I'm to be very clear and complete disagreement with both of those positions. But I think what Polyev did was not as strategically clean as what Harper did there. Because the problem with Polyev on this topic is the visible glee, the visible enjoyment he gets out of punching down on this group of people. 
And the problem and the risk with this is not just that it takes the conservatives off the messaging that works for them on economy, on cost of living, on housing, all the stuff that has gotten them to their 17 point lead. But it's also that it runs it runs contrary to a fucking $3 million ad campaign that they just rolled out over the summer that's also working really well for them to soften his edges among women and to convince people that this guy's got some warm and fuzzies in him. But when he comes out and he does stuff like this, it runs absolutely counter to that. So I think it was... I think it was uh, I think it was bad. I think it was off message. I don't know what the internal pressures were that led to it, but I think it was a mistake. Um, and then, of course, you know, also normalizing this rhetoric, it does it puts trans people at risk. There's no question. And that's uh, and I think that that's really shitty. So I thought it was both interesting um, and, and also not particularly well played on their part last week. AI is the talk of the town with implications stretching beyond simple tasks like adding chatbots to draw a picture of David Hurley with a six-pack. Its rapid development and potential opportunities are significant for everyone. What we might not realize is that the sudden emergence of AI owes much to years of pioneering work in Canada. Joshua Bengio at the Université de Montréal and Jeffrey Hinton at the University of Toronto have been pivotal so much so that they are known as the godfathers of AI. Their research on artificial neural networks and deep learning sparked AI's capacity to mimic human learning and creativity. Canada is now positioned as a world leader in AI, including its responsible development, with globally competitive clusters emerging from these labs. Investing now can power the economy tomorrow. That's why U15 Canada is a proud member of the Coalition for Canadian Research. The Coalition is urging the federal government to support science and talented Canadian researchers with new funding in this budget. We have to support Canadian ambition, full stop. Visit researchcoalition.ca to learn more. But Corey, if you could just hold on for a second, because I want to go back at Jordan on something about this, because I don't know. Because um, <laughs> I can't find a consistent ideological or intellectual through line between Polyev's positions. But I do believe that everything he said on any one of those issues, on every one of those issues, is the common sense Canadian, average Canadian response to that issue. And so I think more than what the Liberals or New Democrats said on the other side, Polyev would have had heads nodding at everything that he said. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not so sure about uh, particularly on the online harms piece. I well, don't sorry, know. that's sorry. That's yeah. A, yeah, I agree. But on the on the trans and 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 on the porn, I think that that's kind of you know as Corey says. I mean, men competing with women doesn't make sense to people. Yeah. Well, look. I mean, I I I think that we've seen different measurements of what the Canadian why we're fucking talking about it is another matter altogether. I mean, yeah. And look, I are there are there people who are uncomfortable uh, or unfamiliar with the notion of somebody being transgender? Absolutely. Is that a large swath of the Canadian population? Yeah, I think it probably is. Um, but is that the same as saying that Canadians want their politicians to enact policies that remove rights from people for what is effectively a private personal decision? And that I am, I'm, I'm less persuaded of. I think that there's a reason, for example, that we don't see Doug Ford going out and blasting on this topic, right? I think that there's a reason that this issue has not gained traction in Quebec. I think that by and large, that there is a small group of voters who are very activated around the issue of concern around for, about transgender people, but that for a lot of Canadians, when politicians deep dive into this issue and spend a lot of time either scaremongering or in the case of Daniel Smith, de developing elaborate policies to remove rights from these folks. What it really communicates 
is that you are more interested in your weird internal policy debates around these issues than you are about the issues that actually impact people on their day-to-day -day lives. So, well, maybe some of those concerns meet the nod test because those are concerns that people have heard echoed other places. I don't think as an issue for the Conservatives to champion and for him to take a really strong negative stance on, I still don't think it's really good. I don't think it plays into the strengths that have got them where they are. I, you know, I, I, Corey, I... I got to think, though, I mean, the Liberals seem to delight when Polyev does this. It gets under their skin. They want to rush to the barricades and fight these fights um, and um, feel morally superior as they do so. Um, but I said earlier, I can't see a way back for the Liberals, but I'm fucking certain it doesn't lie through issues like this. Yeah, I, like I totally agree. Like I, I think for most for most Canadians, I agree with you. David, that, you know, uh, Polyev has more heads nodding than the Liberals do on this stuff. But, you know, I think where, where the government and, and frankly, the NDP have really missed the mark is on relevancy of the topics they're choosing to talk about. And, you know, how much do you want to talk about uh, climate change? Well, ca Canadians are concerned about it. Like 80% of Canadians have some level of, of concern about climate change. But not compared to whether or not they can pay their mortgage. Like, you know, when there, there is a hierarchy of these things. And, and like, uh, you know, is it terrible to say? I just don't give a fuck about this stuff. And I think, I actually think that is the majority position. Maybe I should. Maybe I should be more concerned about it. But I just, I, to be honest, uh, it is of so, such marginal relevancy I think, uh, or, you know, not even marginal, like of zero relevancy to most people. And I don't think that people are, you know, are out there harboring ill will towards trans people, you know, uh, I, you know, love and joy to everybody, you know, but also, you know, can we talk about something that, uh, is, uh, has a more tangible effect on people's lives? I think the online harm stuff is, you know, a real issue. I do think there's, you know, there's a lot more traction around uh, parental concern about stuff that's going on online. And pornography is part of that. And I think, you know, age verification, if there's some way that you can do that, that it isn't, you know, then I think people would probably be in favor of that. I, you know, I would be in favor of that. But I'm not sure there's a way to do it, to be honest, that that uh, isn't going to be end run by the 14 year old who wants to look at pornography anyway. Um, so, you know, but I do think there are issues around social media platforms, uh, around, uh, the sort of addictive, uh, uh, nature of some of these products. Like I, I, I think social media is more addictive than smoking. Like, I think that the issues around that are, are huge. And I think the potential harms to kids are huge. And I think there's, there's a lot there for, for policymakers to talk about and have serious conversations about. I don't really see us having them though. Like I, and this isn't really a case of this isn't a case of old people being concerned about young people. This is oh, young people, young people themselves. Yeah, these kinds of these young people themselves tell the me board. in the polling that they yeah. regularly encounter information they consider to be dangerous or harmful. That's right? right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, these you know, are hugely important policy discussions. Well, you have non-transparent algorithms and things like you know if you're if your kid is having you know suicidal thoughts, you don't want YouTube feeding them a bunch of stuff on how to kill yourself, right? Like there's, you know, there are, there are real issues there. And, uh, I, you know, I think they weren't for further discussion, but, you know, the trans stuff, you know, I just like, I don't know, where do I think the public is? Where do I think the politics is? Talk about things that affect more people. And, you know, and I don't see any, any path to a better place than they are right now for either the NDP or the Liberals by dwelling on this shit. I think it, it makes it worse for them, not better. Totally. If you're the Liberals, add up the number of days left in your mandate and ask yourself how many of them you want to spend talking about this. Right? Because it gets you nowhere. It gets you nowhere. All right. I think despite the absence of Reed, and boy, we sure could have used him for the porn conversation. <laughs> um, we were lacking, Just the, ex won't be the, we were same. lacking the expertise. We were lacking the expertise uh, that uh, would have been required for a fulsome conversation about that. But in any event, we did our best. Uh, it's time for a hey use. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. Who wants to go first? Well, I'll go first because mine is linked to our last topic of discussion. So right. my hey you is going out to 
the conservatives who are interested in trying to quickly placate the, the social conservatives with some of this stuff on trans issues and they're just going to get it done and then move on to other topics. Um, my hey you is uh, to take 10 minutes out of your time and go listen to the the first uh, the first trans conservative candidate, uh, a former conservative now, who ran for you guys last election named Hannah Hodson. She did a really interesting interview with Vashi on Powerplay last Wednesday. Go take a few minutes and listen to it because I think she articulated something really important, which is that the notion that you can court these hard populist, very socially conservative people ahead of elections. You can take their volunteer effort, you can take their donations, and then you can ignore them come policy time. That notion is wrong. And these folks are increasingly driving the bus and it is to the broad detriment of your party. And you only need to look south to the Republican Party to see some of the worst manifestations of this, to look at what's happening to Daniel Smith with Take Back Alberta, to see it closer to home. So federal conservatives, if you think that this cannot happen to you, uh, I, I would implore you to listen to some of your formerly own uh, and think otherwise about this because you have to pay the piper and it's important to consider what that cost might be. All right. Thank you, Jordan. Liberals don't know what it's like to have a flank that has to be appeased. Right. Um, anyway, Corey, what's your hey you? Well, I want to do one to the Ontario Liberal Party members out there. Uh, just using this as an excuse to talk about uh, the other Coletto poll. Oh, yeah, we never got uh, to that. <laughs> as, uh, as dire and terrible as we can all agree on this podcast, things are for, uh, for the Trudeau government. Uh, I found it very interesting to note that Justin Trudeau is stuck in the shittiest position in the polls you could ever imagine a political leader being is one point higher than Bonnie Crombie is in the province of Ontario. <laughs> as bad, as bad as it is for uh, the long in the tooth, uh, beyond redemption, federal liberal government, uh, you know, it's worse for the Ontario Liberal Party. And, uh, uh, and, and that's with a new leader and, and su supposedly some leadership bounce around that. But uh, it's, it's dark, dark days, 14 point lead for Doug Ford. One point behind uh, Trudeau's levels of support in the province for Bonnie Crombie. Sad, sad days. So uh, I don't know. <laughs> there you go. No, nothing, nothing, nothing. I can say in response to that. But 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 Jenny would want me to point out that Paul Yev's doing better than Ford in Ontario. Yeah, like four point or three <laughs> points. Yeah, Four, 44 to forty-one. Okay, my hey you. My he you goes out to the liberal strategists who took anonymity so that they could discuss, frankly, the uh, the strategic considerations behind going after Polyev. I would be so desperate to hear what you would say on the record um, uh, if you needed to take anonymity to make that uh, to make that fucking claim. Listen, liberals, the bottom line is is that Polyev as prime minister is getting baked in, and it's getting it's acceptable, it's normalized. There's not much resistance to it. You have now, you bought yourself a year and a bit. And at the end of that time, if he's not unacceptable to about 60% of the population, you're going to lose and bad. So this is the task. This is the task and it won't be done on identity politics. It has to be done on things that will actually hurt individuals. And you got to find the wedge. You got to create a wedge. You got to find it. You got to drive it. Um, but it's all about Polyev's negatives. There is no chance, no matter what you think you're doing well, no chance you will win if people think he's okay. There you go. Hey, you. I would like to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, our sponsor, CN Rail, Bruce Power, Aurea, U and U15 Canada. Uh, all of their great uh, support for our little show here uh, allows us to put this thing on. I want to thank uh, Corey and uh, Jordan for being here. Uh, a great conversation in the absence of Reed. And thank all of you for watching and listening. And we'll see you next week with more of The Curse of Politics. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. <laughs>